Well, I've said it a few times already in this series, but I'll start again by saying gender, rather than being given by God and plain to see in both nature and science, is seen today by a vast group of many people as a social construct. It's being politicized. It's, it's being seen by many as a way to oppress. Uh, Politico.com read an article last week titled, this is from their website, Senate Democrats Propose Requiring Women to Register for Military Draft. The move would reignite a contentious debate over whether women should be required to register for the draft, a move the House and Senate have each considered in recent years, though the change has never become law. One female scholar noted that the insistence that men and women are the same when it comes to sex has left women vulnerable and frustrated. Quote, the furious, swaggering, foul-mouthed rhetoric of feminism promises women what many can't find elsewhere, protection, end quote. Is there protection for them by submitting them to war with men? Do they know what it's truly like to fall into the hands of men in war? And should we ask that of them? Well, as Christians, we understand that women more than ever need to know that men will treat them by a different set of rules seek the well-being of women above their own. This is not just a view of Christians. There was a time in our own history that the overwhelming consensus, as you can tell by our laws, was that women were not to be treated like men. They were to be treated differently like women. And consequently, in the old view, if you weren't considerate to women, you weren't really a man. Do we embrace God's design and do we see how important it is as his people? I want to say up front, this, is a, this sermon is, a, is an info download sermon like last week. I will do some application. I will talk about the gospel, of course. I'm saving more specific application as I get through some of these larger teachings. And so to single and married folks, I want to say I'm not going to scratch every itch this morning. This is about undergirding us in the truth about why we walk as men and women in the church and order ourselves the way we do for the glory of God. And before I read the texts this morning that are, there, that are available for your reference there in your bulletin, I do want to again draw your attention to pay attention, to pay attention to how the principles that were repeated in the patterns of the Old Testament are now applied to prescriptions and commands in the New Testament for the local church and the individual believer. I'm not going into a strict exposition of these texts, as you already know. In fact, all these texts have been preached from this pulpit. The 1 Corinthians text, 1 Corinthians 11 text, I spent three sermons on. So they're on our website. And the Ephesians text has been preached on by my brother Chris Irwin. That's also on our website if you want a fuller treatment. We're going to look again at these texts and see how they're consistent with what we have been studying in this series already on the gift of gender 
and how we are to glorify God and how he made us. So let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's on page 1017, 1018 in the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. I'll be reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. That's our pew Bible. Again, Paul writing to the church at Corinth, uh, a letter of response to the questions they had sent him. Things he had to engage as their authority, as the apostle. Given that authority by Jesus himself. And he speaks to their order in corporate worship. And particularly how some were throwing off their gender distinctions. I'm going to start there in verse 2. He says, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions as I delivered them unto you, the teachings. Verse 3, but I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Verse 7, a man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God, so too woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. We'll come back to that. So he's talking about gender roles there, and he references back even again, back to the Old Testament. But let's go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, found on page 1039. 1039 in the Pew Bible. Now speaking to Christians in, 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 in marriage. They're in the local church, they're at Ephesus. Look at verse 22, Ephesians 5:22, very familiar passage. Wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives will submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for. And then verse 33. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife is to respect her husband. And now more specifically, let's go to another text of the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy 2. Verses 8 through 15. It's on page 1051, 52 in the Pew Bible. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Again, order in the church. And going back to God's purposes and design. Verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense. Not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works as is proper for women who profess to worship God. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing. They continue in faith, love, holiness, with good sense. This is God's word. Good thing these passages are so easy in the New Testament. I'm joking. Uh, 
that someone got that? Um, yeah, the, uh, for, especially 1 Corinthians 11, I slowed down there deliberately. Uh, Chris took uh, meaningful time in Ephesians 5 before. And, of course, years ago when I preached through 1 Timothy, I realized how I needed to take time to be careful here as well. But I'm going to hope to summarize these teachings again and give us a further clear picture of why we believe what we believe and live the way we live as Christians, particularly as it pertains to gender. Here's the central point. It's there for you in your bulletin. Scripture is consistent in its celebration of God's gift of gender. Scripture is consistent in its celebration of God's gift of gender with males and females each given their assigned tasks. Their assigned tasks. Therefore, let the church be conforming God's design by grace. Let the church be conforming to God's design by grace. Point one, looking at 1 Corinthians. God's design informs our corporate gathering. God's design informs our corporate gathering. Apparently couples were coming to church gatherings in such a way that they dishonored the roles they had signed up for in marriage in Corinth. And we could go on and on about the hot mess that was Corinth. In fact, I, people think that, uh, I've said it many times, I think people often think that, yeah, we're like the book of Acts. A lot of times, most of the time, we live as local churches all across the world in Cor Corinth. That's kind of just normal. It shouldn't be, but the word of God has to come in and be brought to bear on people like us who are just getting messy. And God transforms us by his grace and and by his word and by the spirit. But these Corinthians, they were, express, they were prioritizing self-expression more than edification. And the apostle brings the truth of the word to bear. His penned scripture, superintended by the spirit, guides the church and gives commands. First sub-point, authority structures are God's design and intention. Authority structures are God's design and intention. But notice he states that Christ, the Messiah, that's what Christ means, Messiah, has authority over mankind. Makes no distinction between men and women as far as personal worth, abilities, intellect, or spirituality are concerned. Both as human beings and as Christians, women in general are completely equal to men spiritually, and they are both under Christ. So who's king? Literally, who's the anointed one? Jesus. He then states that male and female, equal and interdependent in the text, noting that the husband has authority over his wife. That's what headship means, authority. And that God has authority over the incarnate son, Messiah, relating to one another with a differentiated order. But let's look deeper. Second subpoint: Christ modeled submission in his humanity. Christ modeled submission in his humanity. Humanity. To have authority over someone, to be the head of another, is, is not inconsistent with equality of worth, honor, and essence, as you can see here. It reminds us that God the Son, though equal with the Father, when the Son put on humanity, true, full humanity, he submitted himself to the Father as his authority. But he was altogether equal with the Father. This is what theologians call the economic expression of the Son in view there in verse 3. Not an eminent or ontological expression. To put it in a wordy way, the metaphysical inner workings of the 
ineffable trinity, as one scholar put it, do not readily allow for easy, easy life applications. So we can't make that direct connection between us and the trinity. That doesn't work. But the incarnation of Jesus is something that is used to teach us in God's word. The Son is uniquely the, eternal, the eternally begotten second person of the trinity. He then, as the, at the appointed time, came in true humanity, fully full humanity, body and soul, to fulfill all righteousness that Adam and, and us, those of us, everyone in Adam, never did. When he came in the flesh, he submitted himself to the Father perfectly, though he was completely equal with the Father. He was always equal to the Father, but in this great act of service, he put aside not his nature, but he laid aside the glories of heaven to serve the Father and those whom the Father elected to give to the Son in redemption. So only by putting on true humanity could he live the perfect life for us. And only in true humanity could, he, could death be experienced. He died as a human while his divine nature remained united to the Father and the Spirit. As a man, he lived the life we should have lived. He never sinned. He always did what was perfect. And he died, though, the death that we deserved. Jesus, the spotless, precious Lamb of God, took on our sin and the death that we deserve. That's why the Bible holds him up as the ultimate servant. As God, he endured the wrath of God as only he could do. And as the God-man, Jesus alone is uniquely qualified to be our one and only Savior. We need the God-man. We need Jesus in order to be reconciled to God. We need God to come do what we could not do for ourselves. We need Jesus. The more you think about how Jesus condescended to come and to do what he did, the more glorious he becomes. All this discussion about gender, beloved, will be hollow for you if you don't get the significance of what God has done in Christ. And if you don't see how magnificent the service of God the Son is for you, then you will waver, falter, and well, walk in rebellion against God. I mean, if anybody had a claim, it was Jesus. But he put it aside and became the ultimate servant. Friends, if we don't repent of our sins take God's side against our sin, if we don't trust only, hold only to the risen Christ, we will not only get our life wrong, but we will die wrong. We won't just get life wrong, we'll get death wrong, if I could put it that way. You see, we'll die, we, we will die in our sins, separated eternally from the blessed presence of God, only to know His wrath forever in hell. You ever think past today? Are you, are you, you ever look past just the next meal? You look down the road further. Where will, you, where will you be in a thousand years? Do you comfort yourself maybe today with the idea of just being dead and non-cognizant 
I think you know there's something in the future, though. The question is, what future is there for you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Put your trust in Jesus. Look to Jesus. It's in looking at him now, church, we understand the New Testament's grounds for ethical imperatives. And here in 1 Corinthians 11, more so, the woman is called to picture Jesus. Just as Jesus is equal to the Father, yet he chose to submit himself for the greater glories of redemption, so the woman who is equal to her husband should submit herself to the leadership of her husband. Men, do we understand that as the covenant head, we bear a greater burden for humble service, love, care and protection, provision, so that Jesus can be experienced by our wives in part through us too? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's Ephesians 5. We'll get there. I just want to plant that early. We bear a great burden of humble service. But wives, the majority of 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, is about you living out Christ. Christ lived to honor the Father. You're called to orient your life to honor your husband, your wife, and not shame him. I didn't say be a doormat. I didn't say encourage him in abuse, laziness, and passivity, bringing him a binky and babying him to no end. No, that's not what we're talking about. I'm saying this, do, do, you all, do you do all you can to bring out his God-given dignity? And do you understand the account that he will give to the Lord? Do you do all you can to encourage him to exercise authority in the home like Jesus? It glorifies God for you to do this. And it shines Christ through you. What ambition do you have higher than for Jesus to shine through you. Shouldn't that be our prayers as men and women? Christ, shine yourself through me. Show yourself to my kids and my family through me. I put myself out there a lot. It ain't nice. It ain't great. Jesus, you shine through me. I submit. I'll fill me with your spirit. If we are about ourselves, well, you know how that goes. Ladies, if you're about yourself, you'll tear him down. And in the process, you will harm your own dignity. Do those around you see a faithful witness in you? If you're honest, have they seen you malign or manipulate or tear down your husband? How do you think the Lord feels about that? Some of you have sons. How would you feel if his wife spoke to him and treated him the way perhaps you treat your spouse? Wives, one day your husband will be called to account. I've been saying it throughout the series. He's a, he is the established head of the house. God keeps saying it. Regardless of what culture or the flesh tells us, he's gonna, he has a responsibility. You can say this to wives and single women. Do you speak the truth in love to men? If I could just briefly speak to singles 
Just do you see men, are you tempted to see men as projects with potential for a future spouse? I just want to say here, you're thinking, we're thinking about the roles and how God assigned them. You remember that that quote project could be the one you wake up and realize you're called to submit to as the primary decision maker in your home. That project could ter- turn quickly into another child you have to raise. Fulfilling our roles in marriage is no light matter. It's no, you can't put it on the, the Hallmark Channel can't capture it in their romance movies. I'm not taking a shot at romance movies, I'm just saying it doesn't really grasp the theological weight of what it means to be in covenant together. There is headship and submission. So ladies, encourage men towards Jesus' courageous example of using their strength to protect, serve, love, and abide in the truth. Use their strength to protect, serve, love, and abide in the truth. Ladies, show men Jesus like he's never been seen before in your godliness and your posture. In this world, I promise it will be striking. And wives, remind yourselves of the sober, fearful scene in the garden when God came to question Adam. Next sub-point. We should signify outwardly our desire to honor our Creator. We should signify it. We should signify our outwardly signify outwardly our desire to honor our creator. Now I want to tread carefully here because we're talking about externals to some degree here in 1 Corinthians 11. The signs of authority here in this context, in this culture, were head coverings. And they signaled that gender roles were not being tossed off in the church as they would have been in the world. And he doesn't give details as to the type of covering the women should wear. The creation order supports not a certain kind of shawl, or, but a symbol of authority. That was the key, was they were to signify something that their gender roles were not being tossed out the window. Women speaking in the assembly must do so with some, something that signifies that they, uh, their authority to do so. And you know why? Well, speaking... Speaking can turn into, as we'll look, see in 1 Timothy 2, speaking in the assembly can turn into an opportunity to teach and to exercise authority which was forbidden according to God's word. In other words, something must tell the congregation that Paul's talking about here, that the woman speaking in public who is praying or prophesying, which chapter 11 does allow for and chapter 14 does allow for, they were to do it under the authority of the elders. Remember, Unique manifestations of the Spirit were going on. The full canon of God's work was not complete. The foundation of the apostles had not been laid. Unique work of the Spirit was happening in the early church. And the woman speaking in public was not to throw off her role of showing the excellence of God and man. So when it says that man is the glory, that's what it talks about. She was to show the glory, showing the excellence of God and man. That's what that means. The woman speaking in public is not to throw off her role of showing the excellence of God in man. That was the glory of man. That's what the glory of man means here in 1 Corinthians 11. 
You know, today, as uh, one guy pointed out, the symbol could be wearing a, a wedding ring or the way she dresses or taking her husband's last name, as it is in some cultures, or a well-known demeanor of gentleness and respect. But something we do do here at La Plata Baptist Church, we, we, we strive to visually signify and separate the pulpit ministry from the podium ministry. The pulpit, visually for us, typically conveys the place where men are doing the leading and teaching and shepherding particularly the elder shepherds. We not only want to joyfully embrace gender roles, we want to signify them visually as best as we know how to do. The natural God-given inclination of men and women is to be ashamed of that which confuses their sexual difference. And culture gives us the symbols of masculinity and femininity, while nature dictates that men should embrace their manhood and women embrace their womanhood. Paul's telling them God wants men to look like men and lead like men. And God wants women to look like women and to serve like women. But that physically looks, what that physically looks like will vary from time to time and place to place. So we need to apply with grace here, beloved. You know, some struggle with gender identity issues or gender dysphoria. We should deal patiently with them and sympathize with them in those struggles they're experiencing. Always bring the word of God to bear gently. We should point them to 1 Corinthians 11, not as a way of shaming them, but for teaching. God made women, men and women to be different. And that when we confuse those differences, we're confusing what God, to bring, God designed to bring himself glory. I do like Kevin DeYoung's ABCs in his book, Appearance, Body, Character, Demeanor, Eager Posture. And I plan to get into those in an upcoming sermon, not today. We'll come back to that. But let me state here that single men and women should adorn themselves, just like married folks, carefully. Because we live in a fallen world. Yes, you can quote to me, man looks on the outward appearance, right? But God looks at the heart. And that's right. We are visual, aren't we? We can be distracting. We can do things in our appearance, and visually even in a service, that undermines the gift of gender. And so we walk carefully, we pursue wisdom. Modesty and discretion needs to make a strong comeback today. Parents, it does challenge us to be thoughtful, doesn't it, in raising our children? Let's not talk to them about appearances primarily. That's also a problem. I'm from the South. That's a real problem. I mean, you've got to have it. You've got to have a look in certain parts of the South. I'm sure that's true also in circles here, too. Some of you know that well in the Washington, D.C. culture. Let's not talk to them primarily about appearances. But let's talk also about what we signal as men and women of God. What signal are we sending? Culture hates that. They don't want the idea that you send a signal. But nevertheless, we do. Because we're fallen, visual creatures. We should find the balance between vanity and excellence. It's not easy. You probably want more specifics today. I'm not giving them. You need to pray for wisdom. I hope to be more helpful in upcoming sermons. I'm not holding out cultural examples. I will simply say we should dress in such a way we neither confuse or tempt people about our own bodies 
We should dress in such a way that reflects God's good design in and out of church. And I know the flesh doesn't want to hear it, but it requires, you ready? Thoughtfulness. i got to be thoughtful about that. I can't just roll up and just kind of wing it. Probably, that's probably not the best way to go, right? It's not. We should be strive to be thoughtful. Seek wisdom. Some of you want laws from me this morning. I'm not giving those. You need to seek wisdom. Seek the counsel of godly people. Scripture is consistent in its celebration of God's gift of gender with males and females each given their assigned tasks. Therefore, let the church be conforming to God's designs by grace. Number two, God's design guides the marital union. God's design, God's design guides the marital union. Did God merely create marriage for companionship and for romance and sex and for children? Well, in Ephesians 5, we see he created marriage to reveal this profound mystery of Christ and the church, that God will unite himself to his people like a husband to a bride. This is a high calling. His plan is for, watch, is for a watching world to look at a husband and a wife and see such gentle, joyful submission and such self-denying, loving leadership that it gets a picture of the beauty that is the relationship between Jesus and his people, between Christ and the church. That's a tall order. And it's a glorious one. And there's not a higher calling in marriage. It's not to ourselves, it's to the Lord. Do our marriages have the aroma of God? Do they, Im do they image God's relationship to his people in, in the husband and wife? I'm so thankful for the godly men and women I've had over my life to model this for me. I've seen it in you and I've named you by name here before. I saw it in my grandparents. I saw it in pastors and, parent, and my own parents, fellow church members. And friends, it is wonderful to look back and realize I had teachers the whole way. Wouldn't that be great if all the children in this church were brought up and realized, yeah, I had examples the whole time. Are we living this out, married couples? Does the world see us respecting our gender roles? Do they see wives speaking respectfully and husbands caring tenderly? Nothing less Nothing less than God's full glory is at stake. You see, if there's no distinction in how we relate in marriage to, e to each other, no ordering, no self-sacrificing, no headship, no joyful submission. We are left, as one author put it, with Christ and Christ, or the church and the church, not Christ and the church. If we disallow sexual differentiation, we're not allowing to shine forth the very heart of marriage itself. I mean, look at the commands of submit given to the wife and love command given to the husband in Ephesians 5. The first thing to notice from the text is how the overarching commands for the husbands and wives are given at the specific points of fallenness. Isn't that something? Their commands are given at the specific point of fallenness, which we studied in Genesis 3. The command to submit and love are intended to reverse the curse inflicted in the Garden of Eden. So God's plan from the beginning was for the wife to help and the husband to lead. 
but sin corrupted God's design. The men who are supposed to lead and protect and provide for their wives, now tainted by sin, treat their wives harshly. The inclination is to exercise ungodly rule. And his, Paul aims to reverse that, the effects of the curse and have Christian husbands love rather than domineer. And that's by the grace of the Holy Spirit. The sinful inclination, inclination of women is to, as Genesis told us, is the desire to rule over her husband. She's tempted to manipulate and scheme and get her way over his so that she is the head. But notice the commands, submit and love, focuses on what we give, not on what we get. The focus is on what we give, not on what we get. The verb love, like the verb submit, is given, not taken. You see that? can't take submission and take love. Those have to be given. The wife does not manipulate or demand love from her husband. The husband freely and unconditionally shows love to his wife. The same is true of submission. Have you noticed today that the problem with so much counseling on marriage, especially on radio, television, even, even uh, popular publications, is they focus on what we need to get out of marriage instead of what, what we need to give in marriage. We truly are a consumer society. The basic philosophy of marriage today is counsel today is I'll scratch your back because you'll scratch mine. Sound familiar? Those who both profess and practice Christianity have markedly different and better marriages than those who do not, those who have the Spirit. Next observation here, look at their, let's look at the wives here in the text first. He starts with them. He, he roots the command to wives in two unchanging theological principles. The headship of the husband in the created order and the analogy of Christ and the church. The headship of the husband in created order and the analogy of Christ. That's, that's where he roots the command to submit. The wife should freely, freely submit to her husband in light of those two foundations given to us in God's word. The command is for the wife, not the husband here. The man is never told to submit the, submit, uh, the wife unto himself. Instead, the woman is told to submit herself unto her husband. It's to be freely given. What does that look like? Again, I lean, lean on the good Dr. Young, DeYoung, excuse me, in this, and he broke it down very well in thinking about this. That wives, what does this look like? Wives ought to support, respect, and follow their husbands as unto the Lord. Support, respect, and follow. Support, respect, and follow unto the Lord. Support. Wives, God made you to image. His help to your husband. Remember, the Lord is the ultimate chief helper in the scriptures, right? You're to image that. You encourage and come alongside your husband, not to control him or to be recognized for your service, but your husband should recognize it, but to help him. I think it's fitting in most situations. Let me say this very slowly and maybe even lean into the microphone. I think it's fitting in most situations that the wife let her husband's vocation take priority over her own. 
When a couple cannot figure out how to make both of their careers go, I think it's wise that the wife should be willing to say, I should strive to be a help and support to you. However, this will require prayer and wisdom, especially in a day and age where we live in an environment where it takes, in many ways, two incomes to make it for many of our families. But if you have the opportunity, I would encourage you, follow the biblical wisdom, follow the biblical pattern. So support, respect. Wives, you to respect your husbands. A man may get built up or torn down at work, but the words that can really make him or break him are the ones from his wife. It's a double whammy to be kicked hard at work and then come home and get another one. Give your husbands unconditional respect because of Jesus. It's not the same as unconditionally enduring mistreatment. If you heard me say that, you've heard me wrong. Just as your husband ought to show you unconditional love, show him unconditional respect. Follow. Wives should follow their husbands. Respond to his initiative. Don't second-guess him all the time. I'm thinking especially of following him as the spiritual leader. Have an opinion. Don't, and don't be afraid to voice it, but don't try to undermine his properly exercised authority. Provided he's not sinning against you or leading you into sin. But you should follow him. There's so much we can say there. Go to Chris's sermon. All right, next up point. Husbands are given commands to love and lead. Husbands are given commands to love and lead. Men, your number one command in marriage is to love like Jesus. I just let that sit. To love like Jesus. Go back and read Mark's gospel today. It's an unconditional and sacrificial love. Again, as one author put it, be the one who most often says, let's. Let's. Let's go on a walk. Let's pray together. Let's get the kids ready for bed. Amen, ladies? Anybody need help getting the kids down? Amen, ladies? Nobody. Okay, just me. Take the initiative, men. This isn't about making every decision or believing that listening to your wife is a sign of weakness. Take the initiative. It's not about making every decision or believing that listening to your wife is a sign of weakness, but take the initiative, especially spiritually. Let's have devotions. Let's make sure we're ready for church. Let's make sure we spend time doing this thing that would do our home spiritual good. I mean, gentlemen, what are you more aggressive about? Making money, pursuing hobbies, or the loving leadership in the home? Are we more excited about more time with movies and television and sports and whatever it may be? Or are we more excited, more, more intentional about spiritual leadership? Another thing that, uh, I learned from DeYoung is this one really hits home, gentlemen. Being a spiritual leader means taking the initiative to repair the breach when the relationship has been damaged. 
You mean I got to initiate repair? Yeah. But you don't know what she said. Lead. Lead. Christ loves his wayward bride and continually woos her back from spiritual adulteries. Mr. Young noted here, how much more should you woo back your wife after a disagreement when half the time it will be your fault anyway? He also noted, it's always 100% the church's fault. It's never 100% your wife's fault. Husbands ought to take the first step toward reconciliation when the marriage has grown cold with hurts and disappointments. Maybe today there's a man in the room you're going to have to swallow hard today and take the initiative and pursue again your wife. When you have, and ladies, maybe that's your husband coming to you today. How are you going to make it for him? When you have a sacrificial husband and a submissive wife, so sacrificial husband, Ephesians 5, submissive wife, Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 11, you have a Jesus-honoring home. Both parties know they're called to picture Jesus. Husbands are called to not just lead, but also to sacrifice for their wives. And this is why we preach the gospel again. This is why we seek to understand the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cruel cross. Jesus died for the church. And our leadership as husbands is a self-sacrificing leadership. Dying sometimes looks like, you ready guys, coming home early. Participating joyfully in something she likes to do. Some of you are sweating as I'm mentioning this list, gentlemen. Sometimes it looks like overlooking an offense. Running errands, fixing something around the house. Yes, cleaning up the house. Gentlemen, we may be called upon to give up our, even even larger things than that, we could be called to die in this way, give up our hopes and dreams in order to take care of our, our wife after she falls ill or is injured. You may need to sacrifice that big house or the best neighborhood and live at a lower lifestyle so your wife can stay home with the kids. I'll say that again. Because this is really foreign in America. Gentlemen, you may need to, to sacrifice the big house or best neighborhood and live at a lower lifestyle so your wife can stay home with the kids. You may. Not every family gets to do that. I'm not laying that down as a law. But there's a lot of wisdom in that, and it's worth considering. Again, we've seen the scholars. I've read to you the reports. I can show you book after book that shows that large part of the intellectual elite right here in America would love to see the destruction of the home and the idea of parents as we know it undermined more and more. And the importance of that role. Gentlemen, care for your wives by protecting, nourishing, and cherishing, cherishing her. Love her. Cherish her. As you do your own body, as Paul says. Throw out all the ways our, our culture confuses love with feelings and euphoria. Could your wife look you in the eye, you and me in the eye, gentlemen, say with all sincerity, you are loving me like Jesus. 
Scripture is consistent in its celebration of God's gift of gender with males and females, each given their assigned task. Let the church be conforming to God's designs by grace. Number three, God's design orders church authority. God's design orders church authority. First sub point, inward posture should guide exteriors. Inward posture should guide exteriors. If you look back at 1 Timothy 2, posture is, is not the point. It's, it's piety of heart. Men should pray with holy hands and without anger or quarreling is what he's talking about. Paul's instructions move inward from appearance in prayer to attitude in prayer. Women, he says, there are to dress with modesty and self-control. There should be a sense of propriety, moderation, and refraining from sensuality. So the issue arises with the putting on of clothes becomes, when that becomes sensual or showy, Paul says, don't do that. Again, the posture of the heart is in view, and then it shows itself outwardly. The problem with these items of adornment named here is their abuse in the text. And Paul moves inward from appearance to attitude. His main concern is that men and women adorn themselves in a manner that's fitting with the gospel. It starts in the heart that is mindful of God's glory and not about self-expression, first and foremost. But how can I make sure I'm drawing attention more to the Lord and not to myself? That's very contrary to our world today. So that gives us that running momentum as we go through chapter 2. Second subpoint: Women are to be given every opportunity to learn. Women are to be given every opportunity to learn. Now, I think today we take that for granted. But there are many throughout our world who would love to hear that. And especially in the ancient world. A disciple is a learner, and a woman and, and women, excuse me, are called to discipleship as much as men. We saw that last week. They were part of the disciples with, uh, gathered with Jesus. They were disciples. It's countercultural in many parts of the world today, especially in the past. Here, women were often not allowed to receive public religious instruction. The terms there, quietness or silence, are positive qualities for the learner. I don't know. I don't, it's, it's, it's one of the Creed, Creed movies where Rocky's giving instruction and the young man keeps talking to him and he says, you know, as long as you're doing this, you, this isn't working. And that's the picture of a student, a learner, is one who's in a position of learning quiet and silent. And we've seen from 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, silence is not an absolute command encompassing every element of corporate worship. Some who interpret chapter 14 and then come into 1 Timothy 2 and say women are allowed never to speak in a service. That's not true. He's speaking here particularly about authoritative speaking. Silence in the text refers to the teaching ministry of the church. In the context of corporate worship, women are not to be teachers, but indeed quiet learners, according to 1 Timothy 2. Look at the text again. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. Now, notice there, verse 11 and 12 form a single unit. And the central idea is women should be silent bookends the unit. 
The command for quietness and submission begins there in verse 11, and the command for silence finishes verse 12. You see that in the text. And in the middle, we have explanation for what it means for women to learn in quietness and full submission. Again, one scholar notes the original language here, no teaching and no authority over a man, gives the explanation of what it means for a woman to learn in quietness without teaching and full submission without authority over men. So women should not teach respecting the command for quietness and should not have authority over a man respecting the call for all submissiveness. Why? Well, the context tells us God's order and the weight of responsibility lands upon men, just as it was in the Old Testament. Last subpoint. God places shepherding authority and functional responsibility on men. God places shepherding authority and functional responsibility on men. Paul's not just opposed to authoritative teaching where you know, non-authoritative teaching could be permissible. That's not what's going on. There are some who try to wiggle around this passage. There are, there are examples all through evangelicalism where they try to get around this. He's not just opposed to authoritative teaching <laughs> as if there were non-authoritative teaching. He prohibits women doing two different but related things in the church, teaching over men and exercising shepherding authority over men. And his rationale harkens back to Genesis. He does not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man because to do so would be a violation of God's original design for the sexes in the created order where the man was given headship and the woman was given to be his helpmate. And his thinking is consistent with the Old Testament idea of the firstborn. Adam was created first. He was accorded special rights, just as the firstborn in the Old Testament was. The order is also significant because it indicates Adam's position as the one who names, tames, and protects. And Eve's position as the one who nurtures, helps, and supports. So Paul then points to the difference between the two guilty persons here. Adam sinned openly, but Eve was deceived. You see that in 1 Timothy 2? There's all kinds of, there's a, there's three, a couple of strong opinions on that text. Perhaps the woman, some who think the woman is more tempted in that particular way. Uh, there's just a number of, uh, you could go home and study this yourself, but here's the difference I, I want to highlight that Paul's parking on. In, God, in his argument, God's design for men and, women, men and women, which was tragically supplanted in the fall. There's a statement about what happens when the roles of men and women are reversed. Adam was supposed to be the head, responsible for loving leadership and direction, but he abdicated his role, and Eve's leadership influenced him for evil. And as a result of this role reversal, sin entered the world. The world. That's what he's talking about. Notice the woman was deceived, but the man knew he was in charge. He was, he, was, he was the head, and his sin was particularly even more weighty. And what does Paul mean there by she will be saved through childbearing? Truly one of the strangest passages that we, we've just read at a surface level might blow by us as odd. Well, if we understand the term salvation in the New Testament... 
is not always used in terms of justification before God, we can make more sense of the verse. Most of us read the term salvation and think of giving our lives to Christ and getting saved. That's certainly the strong usage of the term. But salvation has a much broader scope in the New Testament, covering the entire life of the Christian, not just a single definitive moment of faith and repentance. So we're commanded, for example, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, verse 12. Not as meriting favor with God, but as striving for Christian obedience. So giving birth is one of the ways in which a one of the ways in which a woman demonstrates obedience to her God-given identity. This is the sense of salvation Paul has in mind here. He says that women will be saved through childbearing. Yes, we know that some women will neither marry and some will not have children because of medical reasons or singleness. But insofar as it's possible, childbearing is one of the unique ways in which a woman can accept in obedience her God-given design, accepting her design. The gift of that design And people are saved as they persevere, continuing the faith to carry out the Lord's calling in their life. One example being the unique role of women in childbearing. And he clarifies this by saying the general truth that applies to all Christians. Look at that. The women here are to continue in faith, that's trust in Christ, love of Christ and the saints, and holiness, righteousness, with good sense. All of that to say, instead of casting off all order and decency godly woman embraces her femininity in dressing modestly, learning quietly, if she can, bearing children, and continuing in faith, love, and holiness. So him giving that instruction is about calling men to be who God made them to be and women to be who God has made them to be. And that's to be lived out in the teaching authority of the church. Men, instead of casting off all order, And and abdicating their jobs, they are to embrace godly dress, conviction, responsibility, leading, and continue in faithfulness to our Lord. So I should land this thing now. Men, will you strive by grace to follow what Jesus has embodied for us? Literally, he embodied what true manliness was meant to be, saving Protecting, rescuing, leading, teaching, and serving. Ladies, will you strive by grace to be the humble, submissive one that Jesus embodied perfectly in the flesh? Will you both, men and women, trust God to use us in this humble exercise? I mean, after all, who knows best? Who knows us best? And who knows what's best for us better than our creator and designer? Let's pray. Lord, it is in our sinful impulse to cast off your created design and order. It's in our our impulse, Lord, to be selfish, self-serving, consumer-oriented, power-grabbing. But Lord, if we have been bought by the blood of the Lamb and dwelt by you, the Holy Spirit, we can put on Christ as men and women and image your good design so that we might worship you. We pray you cause us to do that.
Help us to turn from where we have sinned against you in these ways, Lord, not going with your order. And give us encouragement, Lord, to walk in wisdom now. Our hope is in you. We praise you. You came to redeem broken ones like us. In Jesus' name, amen.